Well, good afternoon, everyone. This is a little bit of a different pulpit from last time I was here. This feels too musical for me. I, some of you may remember me saying in the past, I can barely play iTunes. So being behind this size of a, of a uh, music stand feels intimidating. Um, but it's great to be, great to be back uh, here in Belleville again uh, this afternoon uh, with this balmy winter weather, right? I mean, this is just uh, fantastic. We were uh, this morning worshiping at uh, Inner City, and we, um, my wife and I were talking with a person we just met who uh, is a student at uh, University of Michigan out in Ann Arbor, and she is from Bakersfield, California, so welcome to Michigan in the winter. Uh, slight, slight change of pace to go from, I'm sure, their winter temperatures somewhere in the uh, 60s to the single digits, so uh, slight, uh, slight shift, um, but that's okay. It's been a pretty mild winter so far, but uh, great to be here, and I see that Christmas is not quite over yet in this, um, it's always Christmas in our hearts, right? Uh, so great to, great to be here. We're going to look at First Thessalonians. Uh, this morning, uh, this afternoon, First Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, and uh, I'm going to pick up where I left off because I'm sure it's all really super fresh in your memories, right, from just a few months ago, uh, but uh, I thought I would just uh, kind of keep on walking through First uh, Thessalonians, and uh, we're in chapter 2. In just a moment, I'm going to read verses 17 through 20. And uh, maybe give a couple of quick, uh, couple of quick recaps. But uh, this afternoon, I want us to focus on the idea of what, from this text, what is our hope and joy in the church? What is our hope and joy in the church? Um, you know, there, there are some things, of course, that bring joy and hope in, in our lives. And I want you to think just for a moment, what are some of those things that bring joy and hope in in your lives. Uh, you know, for Meredith and I, uh, we we enjoy when our kids are at home. Uh, they were all three. All three are in college now, and uh, we. I mean, we're really living large now. I mean, we had chicken noodle soup the other night. That's how. I mean, that's how intense our lives are because it's all going right into college bills, right? Um, but it was great to have them home, and it, it's a joy to have conversation, adult conversations with them. Right? Uh, I mean, we enjoyed, to, to one degree or another, every stage, right? Every, and, and, and the stage that they're in now is they're emerging into adulthood, you know, with my oldest son talking about him interviewing for jobs and, and looking for stuff now beyond college. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a new phase and it's an exciting one. And it brings a lot of joy. And it brings us joy because we see them thinking um, not only just logically or how to be good citizens, but also to think biblically and to think critically biblically uh, has, been, has been a real joy for us. Perhaps there's joy and hope that you find in, in things like that with your family. Perhaps you find it uh, in things with, um, uh, you know, with your work or you find it with uh, uh, your community or other people or other things with, uh, that you're connected Maybe you find some of that joy in, in a hobby. I've got to get a hobby. At some point, I need to get a hobby because I just, I don't really have any good hobbies. Uh, I have some, some family who are into golf. Of course, not really in the winter, right? But then I talk with other people at work or they're really into skiing. They're really into whatever. 
And I'm really just into eating. That's really all I'm into, to be honest. Uh, so some of you, I, I see, appreciate that, and that, that's okay. When it comes to, though, us, you know, investing in things and us pouring our lives into things, and we see the fruit of those things, whether it's a hobby or, or, or with our family or with our work, there's a certain amount of joy when we see that time and investment bear some fruit, or we see some kind of result from that. Uh, you know, there, there's, there's certain joy in that. Um, I don't find joy in shoveling snow, and here's why. Because it, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come down again. And I don't find joy in shoveling snow when I've cleared it, and it's still kind of snowing, or all of a sudden the wind blows, and the next morning it's covered over again, right? It, there's, a, there's a certain amount of dissatisfaction. There's satisfaction, though, when I've cleared it, and it stays cleared. So it is for us when we spend time investing in things and we see the positive results, it gives us joy, it gives us a, um, you know, some kind of an encouragement in, in what we're doing uh, when we see success and, and those kinds of things happen. Why? Well, because obviously when we've put some labor and effort into it and we see these things change and grow, there is, there is great hope in that. One of the things that we're going to see from our text this, this afternoon is that when there is hope and joy for disciples in the life of the church family, there is an investment that's happening that's involved in our mutual living for one another and with one another. Uh, really, there should be a great desire on our part to be with God's people because of the work that God has done, not just in simply communicating the gospel to others outside of the church, although there is certain joy that takes place when we're sharing the gospel and co-laboring together, but also in how we share the gospel live the gospel, and demonstrate the gospel to one another. There's a lot of joy and hope that comes in that because we see the ongoing fruit and the ongoing effects of the gospel. It's not just some one-time event of something that occurred, but rather it is a demonstration of a lifestyle that continues. And when believers are a part of a church family... And that investment in one another bears fruit. We are encouraged. It certainly gives us joy. It certainly gives us great hope in the power of the gospel and the ongoing effects of the gospel. It is encouraging and there's great hope in knowing that our body life, that is the life within the church, is not in vain. It's not empty. It actually brings God glory. This glory in the church ultimately will be seen and boasted about in the second coming of Christ. Now, I want to echo something that our brother said this morning in, in leading worship. Sometimes we think that great hope and great joy has to come with big numbers, and it does not. In fact, in our a worship service this morning, we were reminded of the same thing, that in American culture, sometimes we assume that success means you have to have big numbers or big effect. And, and that's, just not, that's just not the case. 
what is the mark of this hope is when we see the effects of the gospel in one another's lives, whether it is small or large, whether it is in, in great uh, quantity or not, is not the mark that we see in Scripture. Right? It's always marked by that faithfulness with one another. It's always marked by that fellowship with one another. And we don't put in those caveats like, well, if there's less than 100 people, the blessing won't be quite as great. No, that's just simply not the case. It has to do with how we are communicating and demonstrating the gospel. Now, all throughout 1 Thessalonians, we looked at in the past some different realities that disciples thank God for the evidences of grace, right? They see the evidence of God's grace in each other's lives, and they mark that out and are encouraged by it and encourage others with that. God's grace doesn't leave someone where they were, but actually changes them to become more Christ-like. This is all throughout 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. As we shift into 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we see that this effect of God's grace on a believer's life results in them communicating the gospel of God graciously with one another, as well as those who are outside of the church. Ultimately, disciples thank God for his word. And when disciples are thanking God for his word, and when disciples are uh, seeking to encourage one another, this results in what we're going to read here in just a moment, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 17, that disciples express hope and joy in the life of the church. So please follow along as I read. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. What I want us to see this afternoon is that disciples express hope and joy in the life of the church. Disciples express hope and joy in the life of the church. Now, why, why is the Apostle Paul here in this letter that he's writing back why is he pausing here for this moment to, to remind them of this? Well, <clears throat> excuse me, in, in chapter 3, he's going to start to transition and shift to the reality of, of suffering that is a part of people's lives and a part of being in the church. He's just had all of this discussion and all of this wording here about how uh, we, we identify the evidences of God's grace, how God's grace changes us, and how we are uh, driven by the Word in order to live a life that demonstrates our commitment to Christ and to the church. And what he is reminding them of is that this hope and joy that we have is in this new community of believers. So, disciples, verses 17 and 18, I want us to see first... Uh, this afternoon, disciples pursue and desire fellowship in a church family regardless of opposition. 
verses 17 and 18. Disciples pursue and desire fellowship in a church family regardless of opposition. Let's look at verses 17 and 18 again. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more, uh, the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. So this kind of opening phrase here, he's saying, look, not being with fellow believers was viewed as a painful thing. Torn away. This idea here of torn away, uh, another way that, that uh, from, from a word picture perspective or even another way to understand this would be uh, being orphaned or separated from someone. Obviously something that was of great pain. This idea, of course, although it was for a short time, there's a clear indication of a longing of the Apostle Paul to be with God's people, right? To see the work of the gospel, to see the things that were going on there, to speak truth with one another, to be an encouragement to one another. This is what was driving him. I think ultimately there's a lot of reasons why this becomes a big deal. In the flow of the context here, he's going to be talking about the need for believers having fellowship with one another through the midst of difficulty and suffering. But I think also in some more of the immediate context here, the reality of the struggle with sin that's going to take place. He's talking here, and we'll, I'll say more about this in just a moment, ultimately about the work of Satan to prevent us or to hinder us from engaging in this activity. But I think it's important for us to understand that ultimately, when we struggle with sin, we need to have fellow believers who will exhort and encourage us. What we need is to create that culture in which we find it a safe haven to be an encouragement to one another. Not to create that kind of setting in which we're wondering who's going to condemn us for not meeting their particular standard, right? Or for meeting their particular bit. The reality is we live in a sin-cursed world that is seeking ultimately to thwart the plan of God. That's ultimately the work of Satan. And so for us, there should be this strong longing and desire to be with God's people. So my encouragement for us this afternoon is to be that kind of person with whom people want to and desire to be with you. You know, we've all had that friend, we've all had that loved one, we've all have or have had that close person with whom you could not wait to get together to spend time with them. Because you know they were going to be an encouragement to you. When you were struggling, you know they were going to try and help you do what was right. And even when you were struggling with sin, they weren't going to beat you down. They were going to seek to lift you up and to encourage you. This is what the church does. And this is why the Apostle Paul is saying, look, to not be with you is to be, it, it feels like I have been orphaned, like I have been kicked out of the family, like I'm not there. That's how strong of a bond that he was trying to draw here. So the clear longing is to be with God's people. The longing is strong, yet clearly in this case, they were hindered. God, who allowed Satan, we would say, 
to hinder them from fulfilling this desire. Yet this did not keep them from making clear, intense, and active plans, yet clearly it was not going to happen. So we shouldn't, as I say this to the people who have assembled here in single-digit weather, right? We shouldn't allow excuses to prevent us from gathering with God's people or to get together with God's people or to reach out to God's people. Well, they're, they're probably busy. Yeah, guess what? We all are, right? I don't know if I should do this or do that because, and we start to make up excuses in our own minds. And in this particular case, what we're seeing here in the text is, look, Paul was doing everything he possibly could to get there, but clearly in God's providence, he was allowing Satan to prevent that action or the activity from occurring. So let's not slow down in our plans or efforts, but recognize that sometimes these things are going to prevent us from, from doing what we, what we ought. Stopped. This idea here. We wanted to come to you Verse 18, Paul again and again, but Satan hindered us, literally stopped. It's a military term here. To stop the advance of enemy armies, soldiers would tear up and destroy the road to hinder passage. Um, it makes ice-covered roads look like not that big of a deal, right? They would literally tear it up to prevent anyone from being able to traverse over these roads, this is the same phrase or idea that's used here. Warfare, warfare imagery, excuse me, is embedded in this metaphor here, Satan himself being the clear adversary. The battle here ultimately was over the souls of the Thessalonian believers. And Satan here ultimately, we won't see this until chapter 3, ultimately was trying to get them to commit the sin of apostasy. Satan was trying to prevent them from gathering together so that ultimately they would say, this gospel stuff ain't for me. And so Satan was doing everything he possibly could to prevent God's people from being together. And the Apostle Paul himself trying to get there to be an encouragement, though he was trying time and time again, Satan was actively stopping him or preventing him from doing this. Now, Satan's not always attributed for why good plans and desires are thwarted. However, in this particular case, he was, right? Satan desires to stop the plan of God. Satan, we understand, is literally the adversary who wages war against believers. He's referred to, of course, as the devil. We understand that. The ruler of the kingdom of the air, or as if some of your Older translations you may have, the prince of the power of the air, which I always found to be a fascinating phrase. How is it that God, who is in control of all things, still allows this activity to occur? Well, who am I to question God's actions and activity in the world? Our God is in the heavens. He does as he pleases, Psalm 115. So be that as it may, I am forced to reconcile the fact that God who orchestrates all things according to his own sovereign plan and to respond to it biblically. So the reality is Satan is doing everything he can to prevent us from doing the very thing we're doing right now. More so. 
Satan is actively trying to prevent you from gathering with God's people, even if it's just a couple of you, even if it's just one of you reaching out to another one, preventing you from actively encouraging fellow believers with doing what is right. One of the great blessings of the church is that it exists to encourage fellow believers. Of course, the church exists for telling the good news. The church exists for evangelizing the lost, but ultimately, the church exists not just simply for evangelizing the lost, but to keep propagating itself over and over and over again. And the way that happens is that disciples grow and they themselves are confident in the gospel of God and they share that with others. And what Satan was trying to do here is to prevent the original evangelist, we would say, in 1 Thessalonians. Paul, who was there to establish that, he was there preventing him from going back and encouraging the saints. And this is this is what Satan was ultimately trying to do, to prevent this ongoing activity of God. Satan, who is hindering this work and preventing this from happening, as believers, we need to recognize what he is trying to do with us. He is ultimately the tempter, right? He tempts Christians. He's taking advantage of them. His own followers, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, are also trying to distort the gospel. Ultimately, Satan is trying to take away our confidence in the gospel of God. He is trying to attack our belief in the goodness of God. This is important for us to understand. I want us to see this example in another text of Scripture, and then we're going to come back here to 2 Thessalonians. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm going to just kind of plop right down into the middle of what I think is a very familiar text to us, Ephesians 4, verses 16 and 17. In Ephesians 4, this is in the application-type section, we might say, of the letter to the church at Ephesus. First three chapters of the book of Ephesians is the doctrinal foundation by which chapters 4 through 6 in the letter to the Ephesians give us the way that we should live our lives. Doctrinal foundation resulting in the necessary action and activity of believers. And in the midst of that, we have, I think what is simple enough and clear enough, the armor of God, which is necessary for believers to engage in their Christian walk. Let's just stop and think for a second. We're gonna, I'm going to read verses 16 and 17 in just a moment. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is saying, look, I want to be with you. I feel like I've, I'm, I'm, I'm out here like an orphan. I've got no family because I'm not with you. That's how strong my longing is to be with you. But Satan is preventing me from doing this. So when we're faced with this kind of opposition from Satan, who is preventing the action and activity of God's people to even be with one another, we need to recognize how we should respond to all of the threats the actions and the activity of Satan to prevent us from following through with the gospel of God. Okay, so verses 16 and 17 
of Ephesians chapter 4. In all circumstances, <laughs> that's not just broad, that's all inclusive, right? In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Talking ultimately about Satan here, right? And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So in here, in this section, we have here what amounts to a defensive position, right? The shield of faith. In this particular defensive position, and, and there's also some offensive maneuvers here, right? Because we're talking about uh, taking up the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. But this first piece is the shield of faith. This shield of faith is given for a very specific purpose. The text says, with which, that is the shield of faith, you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. In verse 16, what we ultimately see here is that believers trust God to combat temptations. This is the activity of Satan, right? Tempting us, drawing us away, trying to convince us of a way that is better than what God has said. When someone is tempted, they're basically saying this, there is something better than what God has said, and I'm going to choose something other than what God has said. And Satan is trying to always, yeah, come on. Has God really said that? That sounds familiar, it is. It's in Genesis chapter 3. I mean, did God really say you can't do that? He knows, he knows that you're going to know more. And so it is for us when Satan is attacking, the best thing we can do is to take up the shield of faith. That is to say this, believers act in faith. And what I mean by that is that they are believing in the sovereignty and in the goodness of God. They are accepting the truth of God above the lie of Satan. It's just that simple. The flaming arrow that penetrates is these kinds of thoughts or these kinds of uh, uh, desires that Satan puts out there that make us wonder whether or not we can trust the goodness of God. Because God really said this. He knows that if you do this thing, you're going to enjoy it more. It's going to be better for you. Yes, this is Genesis chapter 3, the first temptation. Right, Luke chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, where Satan himself is going after Christ and he's trying to offer him you know, the kingdoms of the world, these great experiences and all these different things, trying to tempt him with his own physical desires. Yeah, come on, you're hungry. All the ways in which we can be tempted, Christ experienced it. And this is what we need. We have to trust and believe in the sovereignty and in the goodness of God. It's very easy for us to doubt. Doubt that God really cares about me. Doubt that God loves me. Doubt that he is working all things for my good and for his glory. Doubt that he's working, uh, that, he, that he absolutely has my best interest at heart. There's, there's just doubts on top of doubts with things that we face. What is it that's going to protect us in those dark moments? 
And here was the Apostle Paul who literally had been run out of town in Thessalonica. And he's wondering whether or not the gospel seed had taken root and whether or not there was fruit for his labor. He was longing to be with them. And Satan was preventing this from happening. He had to, what? Trust the goodness of God. That the gospel of God was still at work. And so it is for us when we are faced with these temptations and with difficulty and when we're faced with all these different circumstances, we need to find our trust ultimately in the goodness and in the sovereignty of God. Our hope and joy comes from that being with one another. And so what is it that's going to protect us? Our faith in the goodness of God, our belief in the truth of God's word, our faith that he really cares about me, that he loves me, that he's tenderly watching over me, faith that he's working all things good in my life, faith that he unendingly has my best interest at heart. Faith, faith in the goodness of God, faith to fight off the schemes of the devil in the evil day, faith to do what is right even when no one is looking. Faith to be honest and to be truthful even when money is tight. Faith that I am going to do what is right by my spouse even when he or she is not looking. Faith that I'm going to do what is the right thing to do when speaking about a fellow believer with whom I have a conflict or a frustration or whatever. Why? Because I believe in the goodness of God. I am committed to what it means for the gospel of God for us to be unified as God's people. It doesn't mean I ignore sin. It doesn't mean that I dismiss sin. It does mean that I do things in a biblical way because I trust in the goodness of God. And when I'm tempted to do otherwise, I put my faith in what God's word has said. This is not easy. This is something that requires great Faith and trust in the goodness of God. It is something for which I need help. And part of that help comes through the work of God's people to encourage one another in the church. That's why the Apostle Paul wanted to be there. Ephesians chapter 4 Right In verses 16 and 17, we see that believers trust God to combat temptations, but then believers also communicate God's word to combat temptations. Verse 17, the scripture are, scriptures are clear enough, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Even in the context of 2 Thessalonians, which we'll get back to in just a moment here, we do need to be careful about assigning things to the devil. Ah, oh, the devil made me do it. The devil didn't make you do anything. Our choices are our own. Uh, as, as my wife used to say to our kids, and now to me, <laughs> uh, your attitude is your choice, right? No, well, they made me. No, no. You made your own decision, right? You made your own choice. That's a big difference between Satan preventing us from doing something and recognizing how Satan is going to tempt us to do something, but our choices are our own. And so in the case where there are those temptations that 
come. The point for us today is that as we have these godly desires and we have these plans, we recognize God is the one who is in control of all these things. But we need to speak the truth of God's word. All the different ways that Satan is trying to tempt us and to put us into despair. We need to recognize that we need the truth of God's word to combat these things. Even as Christ responded to Satan, he used the very word of God. What's, what's interesting is Eve's first response, actually, in Genesis chapter 3, is she took what God's Word said and actually applied it and broadened it and made it more applicable, and yet she still gave in to temptation, along with Adam. So for us as believers, we need to take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and having the very Word of God as something that is an encouragement to each other, as well as what is serving as a rebuke to one another, is something that we should be doing constantly and consistently. Even as I mentioned in, in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, there was this desire to see how the gospel of God was allowing the believers to grow and be strengthened in their own faith. Yet for believers, their hope and joy resides in the church. And when Satan comes in and prevents or attacks or causes temptation or does his evil work, we have to be cognizant of that and then as well make sure we are combating that in a way that the scriptures encourage us to do. And that is, of course, taking up the shield of faith, believing in the promises of God, using the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, to fight off the, the attacks of the evil one. So many different passages in scripture that teach us the importance of using the Word of God. Certainly throughout Psalms and Proverbs, we see all kinds of different passages. And in Proverbs in particular, Scriptures ask us, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. With my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. When we take and allow the very word of God to change our thinking, it shapes who and what we are. People who are super fans of anything, doesn't matter what it is, they, they, they're armed with all of, the, all of the language they need to prove their point that they're a super fan. Right? Whether it's a sports team, whether it's a certain product. I read a book a number of years ago called Superfans. Basically, it was a marketing-type book. I was just kind of intrigued by how people uh, do some different things. And they talk about people who start off by just having a little bit of information about something, and then they get, they get raptured by it, and, and they're, they're, it becomes like all-consuming to them, and it's all they can do is talk about it. Uh, perhaps this is you with certain Apple products, right? I mean, you are, you are a self-proclaimed evangelist of Apple products, right? You, you have to have a Mac, you have to have Apple whatever. You're one of those people who's camping out when a new product comes out. That may be you. I don't know. Me? I don't care. I don't, uh, doesn't really, doesn't, I don't really think about it too much. 
Uh, perhaps that's you with a sports team, right? Uh, this, this, this may be the year of the Lions, right? I have mocked the Lions from this very pulpit. And now I may be eating my own words. And I even said, I'd be glad to eat my own words, and I may be. Now, some of you are saying, see, we told you. You know, can't believe we let them back in here. What's going on? Super fans, right? Super fans aren't people who have to be instructed or told about how to defend their thing, whatever it is, right? I'm not, that's not sinful stuff. I'm just talking about life, right? Yeah, it's fine, whatever. When it comes to how we behave with one another, when we see some, something from Satan that's going to prevent us from doing what we know we ought to do, or is going to tempt us or draw us away from doing the very things we ought to do, because we are so controlled by the word of God, these become easy things for us to respond to. Lions, true Lions fans are diehard fans. They're not going to be beat down, but it doesn't matter if it's 26 years, 37 years, however many years it was since they were in the playoffs last, right? That's not going to prevent them from wearing their Honolulu blue. In fact, it may even bolster them all the more. And so it is for those of us who are true believers, your longing and hope and joy comes from being with the church. And being encouraged by fellow believers so that even if Satan himself is tearing up the road so you can't drive there, it's not going to prevent you from getting in touch with fellow believers. It's not going to prevent you from doing the very thing you ought to do when you're tempted and to want to turn the other way. You know what the scriptures say about how you should live and how you should respond and encourage one another. And that's exactly what you're going to do. It doesn't doesn't bother you at all. Because you're driven to go through those things. You're driven to carry on. Disciples express hope and joy in the life of the church because they pursue and desire fellowship in a church family regardless of the opposition. Whether Satan's trying to stop them or Satan's trying to tempt them or they themselves are distracted, they are not going to be drawn away from the fact that they want to be with God's people. Because that's where their joy and their hope is. Because they have invested in the communication of truth. They want to be involved in the reception of truth. And they want to be with God's people. So back at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 19 and 20. Because all of us should be all the more resolved to be connected with one another and communicate truth with one another. This doesn't have to be some big, heavy thing. It can be something as simple as a text. It could be the next step up and getting a coffee with someone. It could be having them over for a meal, taking them out to a meal. It doesn't matter if it's a a little concrete mini mixer from Culver's. I may or may not want one of those right now. (laughs) Yes, I know it's single digits, but that's okay. There's always room for ice cream, right? Whatever it takes for you to get connected with people. I can't have people over my house. It's a mess. Everyone's house is a mess. It's okay. No one cares. But how we seek to encourage one another, we should not allow anything to thwart that, act, that action or that activity from taking place. Disciples pursue and desire fellowship in a church family regardless of opposition. And then verses 19 and 20, we'll see this. Disciples express joy in the life of the church because they are confident of Christ's return. Verses 19 and 20. For what is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? Yes, it is. 
For you are our glory and joy, the source of their joy, and their hope is in the work that God has done, not their own actions or activity. Their hope ultimately is in the coming king. We have a conqueror who is conquering. He rides on a white horse. He will not be stopped. He is coming again. The hope of the gospel is not in whether or not you can survive. The hope of the gospel is knowing we know who wins. And so it is that hope that drives someone. There isn't a mystery or a wondering of what the outcome is going to be. The hope of the gospel and getting together with God's people and fighting off the attack of Satan is knowing ultimately where our glory and our joy will come from. It is from Christ himself. The source of this joy is in the work that God has done. It's not simply a present joy, but it's also an eternal joy. Hope is not in the people individually per se, but in the assembly that exists as a result of the work of God. The church which is built on Christ has the guarantee of Christ returning for her. Colossians 1 and verse 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This phrase here in 1 Thessalonians, this crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus as is coming. This crown here is a wreath signifying victory. Frequent use here of athletic imagery by Paul is that the victor's wreath was bestowed at athletic contests. Paul was rejecting here ultimately human arrogance before God. Paul recognized that God's servants may either serve him well or serve him poorly. But at this time of the evaluation of the believer standing before Christ in glory, we have an opportunity to present our crowns before his feet. Paul, of course, is aspiring from 1 Corinthians chapter 4 to hear, well done. Not out of pride or arrogance, but rather the desire of a good servant of God to recognize that he has been pleasing to his Lord. And this is all what we see all throughout the New Testament. That we may grow and mature and learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And so this is a part of that joy. The fact that we will present. This is the long view of God's people. This is not the short game, right? This is the long game. The destiny of the church ultimately resulting in the coming of the Lord. It's not about individual achievements. It's ultimately about what the community of believers accomplishes for God's glory. And this is what we boast in. It's not whether or not I get recognized. It's whether or not Christ is lifted up. It's not whether or not... I'm recognized for my efforts within the church family. It's whether or not the gospel of God has gone forth and we see people coming to Christ. We see people growing. We see sinners repenting. We see people responding and, and encouraging one another so that there is no other place we'd rather be than with the church of God because that's where our hope and our joy is. Because we ultimately know that we have a conquering king who one day is going to return. Therefore, let us serve with excitement and joy, knowing God is the one who is at work 
that we may be presented as his glorious church. Disciples express hope and joy in the life of the church. They pursue and desire fellowship in a church family regardless of opposition, regardless of temptation, regardless of being prevented or attempted to be prevented of doing so. And ultimately, disciples express joy in the life of the church because they are confident of Christ's return. Let's close this afternoon with a word of prayer. God, thank you so much for these truths. God, I pray that you would help us to find our hope and joy in the life of the church. Lord, I pray that you would help us not to fall to being tempted to turn away from truth because of opposition or because of difficulty. Help us to recognize that the prince of the power of the air is committed to preventing us from being obedient to the gospel of God. And I pray that you would help us to encourage one another to be obedient. God, we pray that we would trust you in all things and that we would be responsive to the truth of your word. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.